The Genesis flood narrative is an account that is familiar to most. It's a bit of a long story, but can it be broken down into three sections, three parts. First is Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22. Genesis 6, verses 9 through 22. We've studied that previously, and in this section we learned that God will judge rebellion. God will judge rebellion, but he'll honor faithful obedience. In chapter 7, which was our passage last week, we saw that the Lord destroys those who have rebelled against him, but rescues a remnant because of the obedience of one man, just one man. God will honor the righteous remnant. And here's the question, the challenge that we left you with last week from chapter 7. Will you be a part of that righteous remnant that preserves a culture or... Will you be a part of an unrighteous culture whose actions bring upon the discipline of God in the first place? It really is an either-or. Either we're going to be part of the remnant that rescues the culture, or we're going to so absorb ourselves into the culture that we can become part of the problem. Well, that was chapter 7. And in chapter 8, we see a new order established by that delivered remnant. Chapter 8 is... is, uh, It's mostly a narrative chapter. In this chapter, we see the details of the water receding, and we see the the details of the family and the animals coming out of the ark. This chapter, in some ways, reminds us of the original creation narrative. The waters abated, dry land appeared, foliage grew, and mankind began to inhabit the earth. And we see similarities here in chapter 8. The waters will abate. Dry land's going to appear, foliage will grow, and man will once again inhabit the earth. The account is is rather straightforward. After approximately five months from the time that Noah and his family entered into the ark, God caused a wind, a great wind apparently, to pass over the earth, and the waters began to recede. The waters then steadily recede over a three-month period, until the ark comes to rest upon the top of Mount Ararat. So it's eight months into it now. And then after three months, after sitting on the top of Mount Ararat, they're still in the ark, but after three months, the tops of the mountains then become visible. And then 40 days later, Noah opens the window, or the hatch perhaps, to the ark, and sends out a raven possibly then seven days later, sends out a dove to confirm that the land was indeed drying up. Now, no reason, it's interesting, no reason is really given in the text for sending out that raven. we, We have some reasons for sending out the dove, but ancient Jewish scholars suggested that the reason that Noah sent out the raven was because the raven was unclean and therefore expendable. I guess that's, that's possible. It could also have been that the raven was a stronger bird than the dove, and perhaps the raven would have been able to travel longer distances. In any case, the text explains the dove's role, but really doesn't go into any detail about the raven's role. Well, you know the story. At first, at first the raven, or rather the dove, can't find anywhere to land and returns to the ark. But then seven days later, the dove is released again, And this time, the dove returns with a freshly picked olive leaf 
indicating that the earth was again yielding produce. And then finally, seven more days pass, and Noah again releases the dove, but this time the dove doesn't come back. Now, in verses 13 through 19, it's time for the family and for the animals to leave the ark. Well, first, Noah removes the covering, or perhaps a portion of it. I don't think he removed the entire roof. But he removes the covering and gets to where he has a pretty good view of everything. Apparently, before now, his view was somewhat restricted. And he personally observes that all the land has dried up. Probably, at this point, anyway, with the exception of a few pockets of water. We call them puddles of water that are sprinkled about the landscape. And then, ultimately, finally, one year... In 11 days, after Noah and his family entered the ark and the rains came and the, the, the gates of the deep were open and the waters flowed forth from, the, from beneath, one year and 11 days after this group had entered the ark, now they disembark, beginning a new order on the earth. And then, of course, after the family leaves, the animals leave as well. That's a summary of the events, the narrative events of chapter 8. But, and I know you're familiar with that. You probably have been since you, you were a kid. But there's actually much more to this chapter than just a narrative about waters receding and, and the family leaving the ark. Actually, there's much more to this chapter. In chapter 6, back in chapter 6, verse 18, God had promised to deliver Noah. And he does this in covenant language. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, he said, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So the terminology here included the establishment of a covenant between God and Noah. Noah and his family were to enter the ark, the place of safety, the place of blessing, the place of refuge, and God would preserve them. They enter the ark, God preserves them. I guess, supposedly, other families could have as well. The text doesn't preclude that. It's just nobody else did. Nobody else chose to be in God's place of blessing. They chose their own desires. Now, the flow of the narrative really turns, I mean, the flow of the narrative between chapters 6, 7, and 8, really turns on two words. They're very special words, and it's the way chapter 8 begins. Actually, three words, if you include the conjunction, God remembered. The Hebrew term zakar doesn't mean here simply, simply a recalling to mind. There are times in Old Testament when it does, but certainly not here, and not most of the time. It doesn't mean that God just now remembered Noah, as if he had been so busy over the last few months that he had just forgotten where he put him. And almost in the same way that we lose track of our keys. Oh, I remember where I put those keys. Well, that's not what's happening here at all. God's not just remembering where he put Noah. He said, oh, I realize now Noah's in big trouble. I need to get him out of that ark. No, that's not what zakar means. And, and you know that. It's, much, it's a much deeper word than that. It, it meant much more than Noah and his family eventually needed to get off the ark, and now God remembers where they are. No, that's not what it means at all. Nor... Did the dying thief on the cross next to Jesus, when he said to our Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, mean that he wanted Jesus just to have some fond memory of him in their time together in the future? No, no, not at all. That was his expression of faith. 
and his desire to be blessed by God by being with God. So, so when that thief says, remember me, it's more than just re- have re- memories of me, just recall me to mind. No, he wanted God to act on that memory. Now, we participated in the Lord's table already today, and we remembered our Lord. But it was more than just a passive recollection, recollection of memories, wasn't it? We remembered him in a special way, who he was and what he did. And actually, we had two elements. And this is very typical of both the Greek and the Hebrew way that this term is used. There's something that's done along with that remembrance. So when we see the term zakhar immediately in chapter 8, we know God's fixing to do something. He remembered Noah. It means he's fixing to act. He's about to provide a deliverance for them. Most of the time when you see this term zakhar, uh, you, you'll see that um, as part of the process. In Genesis 8, then, zakhar is covenant language, indicating covenant faithfulness. God had promised something. Now God's going to do something. And this is a theme that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation. God has promised something. He's going to do something. God is faithful. We may not be. And what I love is that God's faithfulness is not dependent upon my faithfulness. If it was dependent upon my faithfulness, I would be on a fast trek to somewhere I don't want to go. We'd all be on a fast trek to hell. If it was our faithfulness. But we can have confident expectation in the future Because God is faithful and he will accomplish that which he has promised. He's also able to accomplish that which he's promised. Sometimes we want to do something and we have every intention of doing it, but we're just not able to do it. We say sometimes we bit off more than we could chew. We let our mouth overload whatever else it overloads. we, We put ourselves in a position where we promise something. We can't accomplish that. But God never does that. What he's promised, he will accomplish. And he promised Noah deliverance. He's going to accomplish that deliverance. Now, later on in Hebrew Bible, God is going to remember Abraham, Rachel, the nation Israel, and Hannah, just to name a few. Nehemiah asks God to remember him for good and to have compassion upon him. But he also asks God, this is interesting, to remember those who had rebelled against God according to their evil deeds. So you see, remembrance can go both ways. Remembrance can be for blessing, but it also can be for discipline as well. But it includes action. So the idea of God's remembrance is often found, at least when we speak of the positive, it's found in the context of deliverance. And that's certainly what we see in chapter 8 of the book of Genesis. Covenant faithfulness is seen in verse 21 at the end of the chapter. And then again in chapter 9, when the Lord commits to carrying out his promises and establishes the sign of the rainbow. This is something we'll study next week. But he establishes the sign of the rainbow as a visual reminder of the perpetuity of the covenant. So in the midst of great disaster, in the midst of all that has the breath of life in it being destroyed, God remembers Noah and all the beasts and the cattle that were with him. Once again in chapter 8, verse 1, we have to observe a lack of any reference to Noah's family here or their own righteousness. 
the deliverance that is going to be the blessing to the human race does seem to be predicated on the faithful obedience of one man. Again, as I mentioned last week, please don't miss this. We're not implying that the rest of Noah's family was not saved. We're not, we're not implying that at all. I'm sure they were. But the text, the text itself, does seem to indicate that it was Noah's faithfulness that was the basis of God's sovereign decision to deliver a remnant and to preserve the human race. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've allowed that to soak in, to sink in at all, but please do. Because of the faithfulness of one man, God delivered the entire planet, the entire human race. All throughout human history, there has been a righteous remnant. We read about it in the history of Israel. I believe there's a righteous remnant today. If you watch the news, if you, if you read the internet, sometimes we wonder if there's a righteous remnant. Brett Hume, a former anchor for Fox News this week, came out and said just a shocking thing. Just shocking Boy, he, he caught it for saying it, too. I don't know if you know Brett Hume, but he indicated that perhaps the deliverance that was going to come Tiger Woods' way was only going to come through the Christian faith. Shocking! And the culture rebelled against him with fury. Then he got on again and was on O'Reilly's show later in the week, and he said, that's exactly what I said. And then he went a little further with it. Good for Brett. Good for him. Would that more would stand up for their faith. Colt McCoy had a terrible game in the national championship game. But if you heard the interview afterwards, he stood up for his faith afterwards. He was, he was doing everything he could to keep from weeping, but he still stood up for his faith. You know, Tim Tebow, the past Heisman Trophy, one of the quarterback for Florida, strong, strong Christian man. understand his father might have been a student of Ron Allen, who's spoken here before. Interesting. Sam Bradford, quarterback for Oklahoma, stood up for his faith. Throughout his football career, it's refreshing to see that, to see that there is a remnant out there in a culture that looks pretty dark sometimes. There's a remnant of people that are willing to stand up for their faith. Now, here's the question, just like last week, are you going to be part of that remnant? Are you going to be part of the culture? Are you going to so immerse yourself in the culture that, like Tony Evans calls them, secret agent 007 Christians that are undercover? I suppose maybe there is such a thing as that, but they're not that common, my friends. <laughs> I don't know that the Bible even endorses that. You, you've got an opportunity either to stand up like Britt Hume did this week, like Sam Bradford has, like Colt McCoy has, like Tim Tebow has, and publicly pronounce their faith in Jesus Christ and be a light to the culture and be part of the righteous remnant, or we can fade off into the culture itself, into the cesspool that sometimes our culture has become. Not just the United States' culture, by the way. I'm talking about the culture worldwide. The culture worldwide is very atheistic, if you haven't noticed. So it's time to stand up. And Noah does that. And it looks like one man rescues the human race. I hope it doesn't come down to one man or woman in these days. But if it did, if it all depended upon your faithfulness, where would we be? If our culture's deliverance depended upon your individual faithfulness, where would we 
safety. Now, that's something only you can answer. This is not one of those nudge someone with an elbow things. This is serious. Where would we be? Where would it be if it was dependent upon my faithfulness? That scares me sometimes to think of that. We we all want to think the culture is going to be rescued by someone else's faithfulness. No, it's you. It starts with you, and it starts with me. Where will we be based upon your own individual faithfulness a few years from now? Let's look at the end of the chapter for just a moment. In verse 20, this is after they've exited the ark. They've, the, the animals are now scattered, and I'm sure they're running free, just like a dog may after it's kept up in a confinement for a long time, and then you, you release it on a football field. The dogs that I've had, they just run, and they run, and they run. I'm sure all the animals were doing something like that. But, but here, Noah, in verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt sacrifices on the altar. Remember, that's why we said earlier that there weren't just two by two of the clean animals. There were more of the clean animals because they're going to be sacrificed. If he had sacrificed the clean animals, there wouldn't have been any more. So that's why there were seven, apparently seven pairs. So we, we see here that Noah, in response to God remembering him, Noah worships God. So, so we could say in the beginning of the chapter, God remembered Noah. And now at the end of the chapter... Noah is remembering God. He's acting upon the deliverance that he, is, that he has just enjoyed. Noah recognizes the source of his deliverance. Now, with Noah, we're talking about physical deliverance. Had Noah perished in the flood, he would have gone to heaven. So we're not talking about his spiritual deliverance here, but we're talking about his physical deliverance But I'm sure that Noah recognized, this is a very important point for this morning, make sure you get this, I'm sure Noah recognized that that deliverance that he enjoyed was a gracious act on God's part. Now this is critical. Noah recognized that it was a gracious act on God's part. So Noah expresses his gratitude in worship. The Texas actually more than once told us that Noah was a righteous man, that he was blameless. But it doesn't mean that he was perfect. And so I don't think for a minute Noah had it in his mind that he deserved any kind of deliverance from God. I don't think he thought that at all. Those that are truly maturing in their relationship with their Creator never have the idea that they deserve any blessing from God. Did you hear that? If you're maturing in your relationship with Jesus Christ, that thought doesn't come through your head. I deserve this. Because we look at ourselves in the mirror of the Word of God and recognize, even as believers in Jesus Christ, those who have been saved by grace through faith, who who are doing our best to walk in fellowship with God, we really don't deserve any blessing if we really evaluate our lives. I'm talking about if we really evaluate it. And I think that's exactly what's going on with Noah. He recognizes that he didn't deserve it. People like Noah recognize that grace is, by definition, undeserved favor. Undeserved merit. That's more than that. That's probably the most basic definition for grace that we can give this morning. Some might define grace as using the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Recognizing there that it's Christ had paid for it. 
It's not God's riches at my expense, because I've been so good, because aren't I so wonderful? No, it's, it's not that at all. Another way to, to, to understand grace, almost like the second, some have, have understood grace, is all that God is free to do for mankind on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Again, we are recipients of grace because of what somebody else did, not because of what we did. And I think Noah recognized that. And it's my contention that all who are maturing in their faith will recognize this. It's the immature believer that demands blessing. Not the mature believer. The mature believer recognizes they don't have it coming to them. And is so thankful when they are blessed. But for some reason, the immature believer seems to demand blessing. This is the believer who, upon minimal obedience, asks God for something and then expects God to grant them their wishes. Without ever verbalizing it at all, they view God as some sort of cosmic Barbara Eden and I dream of genie or, or perhaps one of the figures in Aladdin, in Disney's Aladdin, that we can just rub the bottle and out will, puff, out will pop God and we'll just say, God, this is what I want today. And then expect God just to do it as if we deserved it. Now, he tells us to ask, to be sure. I'm not downgrading that at all. But I'm saying God is not a genie in a bottle. We don't ever deserve any blessing from him. It's grace, grace, and more grace when he gives it to us. And the more mature you are in your faith, the more you'll understand that. And the more you understand that, the more humble will be your walk with God. And you know what? The more you understand that, the more pleasant you will be to be around as a human being. Other people are drawn to people who are humble. And we're, we're repelled by people who are not. But those who are immature, they don't mind praising God. If God has blessed them in the way they want to be blessed, then sure, they'll praise God. But if God somehow chooses otherwise... I've witnessed this. They stomp their feet like a spoiled little brat and they express their anger with God for not giving them what they wanted. I didn't get what I wanted, so now I'm going to be mad at God. They're going to be mad at God. Now, let me make sure we're talking about the same person. We're talking about the one, you're mad at the one who sent his son, his only begotten son, to die on your behalf on the cross so that you might live with him forever. That's the same one that you're mad at? Just so we're on the same page. I just want to make sure. I saw something written the other day by a Christian author that I won't name, but that you would recognize that read like this. Don't be afraid to be angry with God. He can take it. Well, of course he can take it. That's not the point. Your anger with him doesn't intimidate him in the least little bit. But it says a lot about you. When you get angry with God, it doesn't intimidate God, but it says a lot about you. You may as well wear a t-shirt that says, I am completely clueless about the grace of God. <laughs> That's what you may as well wear. If you're going to go around and brag that you're angry with God. Where do people get this idea? Ingratitude to the max. <laughs> We don't have the right. We are his children. Yes, that's true. But what has he ever done to deserve our anger? Think about it for a moment. If you say God's done something to deserve your anger, this is what you're saying. He's done something wrong. 
And God has never done anything wrong, not even the first time. So we need to get past that. So yeah, he can take it, of course he can take it. But you're the one that's going to be in trouble. You're the one that's going to lose out on something very, very special by, by spending your life in anger with my Creator. I don't know. I guess it hacks me off because he is my Creator. And it makes me mad sometimes to see somebody else mad at my Lord. The one who hung on the cross between heaven and earth. The one who screamed, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who took the beatings for me. The one who had a crown of thorns unceremoniously slammed on his head so that his scalp bled. The one who was beaten almost alive, beaten almost to death with that scourge, and never once uttered a word. That's the one that you're mad at. That's my Lord. That's my King. That's my God. So if you're mad at him, keep it to yourself. I don't want to hear it. Because he's never done anything wrong. And I know this is popular in our culture today, and I've thought sometimes... What is it that God really wants me to teach this generation or these people? This is one of them. This needs to be corrected. And I don't care how many degrees the person who stands in a, in a pulpit or in a radio broadcast, I don't care what their education is. If they say it's okay to get mad at God, he can take it. Something's wrong with that. And I would be delighted if you want to challenge me on that later. Not now, please. We only have two minutes to go and I've got to finish. Please feel free. Noah understood grace and recognized his responsibility to acknowledge the Lord Yahweh here as creator and savior in sacrifice and in worship. Although worship was known from the days of Cain and Abel, this is the first account of an altar actually being erected for the purpose of worship. Again, when we go back to ancient Jewish scholarship, some ancient Jewish scholars held that Adam had built an altar, although that's not mentioned, but they held that Adam had built an altar upon which Cain and Abel were supposed to bring their sacrifices, and that Noah is rebuilding the Adamic altar. That goes a little beyond what the text reveals, but the idea that there's a continuity between Adamic worship and Noahic worship is a legitimate idea. So I certainly see their point when it comes to that. But here's the bottom line. We, we need to remember this chapter this way. Not that the rains stopped and the waters abated. That's true. But that's, there's so much more to this chapter. This is what you need to remember from chapter 8. God remembered Noah. And Noah remembers God. God remembered Noah and delivered him. Noah remembers God and worships him. And expresses gratitude for that. When we celebrate the Lord's table... We're doing the same thing that Noah did. We're celebrating grace. We're recognizing grace. We're commemorating grace. I hope we never have that evil thought pass through our minds that I deserved for Christ to die for me. No. Not on your life. That's why Paul makes it very clear that before we came to Christ, we were his enemies. We weren't neutral. We certainly weren't his friends. No, we didn't deserve it at all. In verse 21, And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, or, and perhaps, should, uh, for rather, that may be translated even though, as being concessive rather than causal, even though the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. 
So in verse 21, Noah, uh, God responds favorably to Noah's offering. We can't help but recall here what we studied in, in chapter 4, where he did not respond favorably to Cain's offering. But here he responds favorably to Noah's offering. The phrase, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, is typical for the Pentateuch, for expressing God's favor toward a sacrifice, and also the one who brought it. If he favors the sacrifice, it means he's favoring the worshiper who brought it. Hence, he did not favor Cain's sacrifice, but it wasn't so much the grain that he was not favoring, it was Cain's attitude that he wasn't favoring. So we know that the Lord is, is, is pleased with Noah here. The sacrifice is probably... Although it's difficult to pin down. It's probably both a sacrifice for thanksgiving and a sacrifice for sin. Because you see, Noah walked with God, but he wasn't, he wasn't sinless. As Job would do later, probably a thousand years or so later. But as Job would do later, Noah is making this offering on his own behalf and also on behalf of his whole family. And then in the last two verses here, or last verse, God promises not to destroy the earth again, even though, and again, I think that term key means here is concessive, not causal, not because of, but even though man's heart is inclined continually toward evil, even though a lot of times we just can't seem to get it right, God still loves us, and he's still faithful toward us. We can have confidence in him. It doesn't give us an excuse to not get it right. But even if you hadn't got it right lately, even if you're going to go to bed tonight and you hadn't really got it right very much, know that God still loves you and tomorrow's another day and you still have an opportunity. In verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God is promising not to destroy the earth, even though the heart of man is wicked. Meaning that despite, there is, despite the fact that there is just cause for destruction, God will exercise clemency. There will be, please get this, this is so relevant to our cultural situation today. There will be predictable environmental patterns that are undergirded by the directive hand of God until the end of time. Did you hear that? There will be predictable environmental patterns. The, the text tells us while the earth remains, which means it is going to remain, at least until the final new heavens and new earth. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat. Summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is based upon the goodness of God and not man's lack of sin. Or it's going to be this way until the new heavens and the new earth. So we might want to include these verses. When, when it comes to cultural relevance, we might want to include this idea in the current cultural discussion of climate change. Just a thought. <laughs> Just a thought. I'm not talking about the political aspect of it. That's a whole different side. I'm talking about the biblical aspect of it. Mankind cannot destroy this earth. God can and will in the end, at the end of the millennium, when all is said and done, when evil has already been taken care of, there will be a new heavens and earth. But in the meantime, biblically, we can't do it if we tried. Not that we should try. Seriously, Francis Schaeffer 
in, in his lifetime was very, very clear about this. We are the stewards of this earth. We have the responsibility to keep it as clean as we can possibly keep it. Keep it. I don't want to breathe dirty air. I don't want to drink toxic water any more than you do. We have a responsibility to take care of this planet. But let's make sure in the whole cultural discussion, and we're supposed to be culturally relevant, aren't we? And in, in, in this cultural discussion, let's make sure we at least as Christians consider what the Bible has to say about this. We can't destroy this earth. Now, of course, in conclusion, in the New Testament, at the end of the New Testament, at the end of time, the current heavens and the current earth will be destroyed, and there will be a new heavens and new earth that will go on for eternity. But that's not a negative development like this flood. That's a very positive develop, development. So where do we end this Genesis flood narrative, at least, this portion of it? We end it this way. Noah's response to God's rescue in worship should form the pattern for our response as Christians to the provision that God has made for us and our soul great salvation. Noah, as it were, fell to his knees and worshipped God for a physical deliverance. Wouldn't it make sense for us to fall to our knees even quicker to thank God for granting us eternal deliverance? Just a thought. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. Oh, we are so grateful for the salvation that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. We're also grateful for all the deliverances that we receive along the way, all the many blessings. And we, we recognize that we don't deserve these things. We don't have it coming to us. But that you love us so much that in, in grace, in, in grace you give us unmerited favor. And, you, and you've done it from the very beginning with our salvation, but you've done it since then so many times. Every day of our life we're the recipients of grace. So, Father, help us to every day of our life to worship you. We'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.